You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is David Sloan Wilson. David is an, is an evolutionary biologist and distinguished professor of biological sciences and anthropology at Binghamton University. He is the son of the author Sloan Wilson, which will become relevant later, and co-founder of the Evolution Institute. David is the author of a number of books, The Neighborhood Project, Does Altruism Exist? Culture, Genes, and the Welfare of Others, Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution, Religion, and the Nature of Society, Evolution for Everyone, How Darwinian Theory Can Change the Way We Think About Our Lives, Pro-Social, Using Evolutionary Science to Build Productive, Equitable, and Collaborative um, Groups, and This View of Life Completing the Darwinian Revolution. And David is a former guest of this podcast, and I talked to him last time about his book, This View of Life. And today I'm going to be talking to David about his recent novel of ideas, which is a response to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, and it's called Atlas Hugged. Welcome back, David. Thank you, Iona. Such a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. You are such a um, a a positive uh, voice uh, in the public sphere. I feel you're such a you you give su- you make such a positive contribution to the general intellectual climate. Well, that's the greatest compliment I could receive, um, Iona, and that's what you get when you study uh, altruism and niceness in all of its forms. You have to kind of hew <laughs> to your theory. I sometimes envy people who study things like infidelity. <laughs> yeah, you definitely walk the walk. So maybe we could start by talking about your choice to write a novel, because you're the author of a number of nonfiction books, and it's quite an unusual choice to present these ideas in novel form. So what made you choose that, choose to write a novel? Well, the idea was actually not my own. I was, I guess I need to give a little bit of background information. You've mentioned that my dad was Sloan Wilson, a famous novelist. And, um, and I think my experience growing up with a famous father is common <laughs> for anyone who has a famous father of just, you know, you can't help but compare yourself. And when your father is famous, that's like staring up at Mount Everest. And so I loved my father. I, I was, um, I respected him. Uh, he was a, you know, a towering figure just in, in everyday, everyday life, often exasperating. But uh, to this day, I'm convinced that uh, I became a scientist to do something that he could respect, but that could not be directly compared to him. So there's a kind of a father-son dynamic which I don't want to dwell on too much. I don't want to kind of psychobabble this story. But uh, it did give me a kind of a 
mix of the, first of all, I became a scientist, not a writer, but I love writing. And I also think I acquired from him, I don't think it was genetically inherited, just the authors, the novelists, um, interest in the human condition. Uh, so, so these were all things that I took with me. And uh, it's what led me, I think, after I became a uh, scientist. At first, I was an aquatic ecologist. I was studying zooplankton. But as soon as I could see that evolution could could actually be used to understand the human condition, that I could do this through the lens of a theory rather than through the lens of my personal experience, then uh, I gravitated slowly, not not abruptly, to studying questions such as altruism, human evolution, cultural evolution, um, religion, all of the uh, arts, the arts, and I'm sure we're going to, uh, I'm sure we're going to get to that. Uh, but never thought of you know, writing nonfiction. My my nonfiction is very story-like, but never thought of writing a novel until I started to. First, I formed the Evolution Institute, and um, let me go on a little bit, Iona, because I think it's pretty yes, interesting. Yes, of course. Um, forming a think tank was like totally new for me. Uh, it was co-founded with a wonderful man named Jerry Lieberman, who had the experience of forming think tanks. And and our first benefactor was a man named Bernard Weinegrad, who since passed away, but he was uh, very high up in the Prudential Insurance Company, just the kind of person you want as a benefactor for your new <laughs> non, nonprofit. And that was in 2007, uh, when the financial crisis hit in 2008. Uh, Bernard said, uh, I have some things to attend to here, but uh, you know, you're not going to hear from me for a while. But um, I would be interested to know what evolution might have to say about all of this. In other words, the whole financial meltdown. And so I actually took up that challenge. I had not yet studied economics. I'd studied religion. And the thing about evolution is that it's a passport to the study of all subjects. And so why not economics? So I wrote a proposal to um, um, National Evolutionary Synthesis Center, a big NSF-supported center, um, and uh, to uh, hold a conference on uh, basically the nature of regulation from an evolutionary perspective. Danged if I didn't get it. And so I was now in a position to educate myself by holding a conference of experts. That led to a series of workshops. And it was at one of those workshops that it was actually Nick Hanauer, who some of your readers might know. He's a, a gazillionaire in Seattle who is a progressive thinker. He wrote a wonderful book called The Gardens of Democracy with Eric Liu. They were at this workshop and they observed, well, really, I mean, Ayn Rand had done so much to popularize the greed is good worldview in fictional form. Shouldn't someone be doing this for our ideas, the ideas that we were newly develop, developing? And it was at that moment that the title Atlas Hugged flashed into my head, the beginning of the plot line, and, um, and then it all went on from there. That was now, oh golly, you know, 10 years ago. So it was, um, there, there's your um, long-winded story as it turned out, <laughs> as, to, as to how I came to write Atlas Hugged. I was not hankering to write a novel. It's, it's, it's something that fell into my lap, and I'm so glad it did. Mm. I mean, I 
Um, I don't often enjoy uh, novels of ideas uh, where it's clear that the, the, the novel is, the desire to write the novel is to explore a particular specific philosophy or to, to uh, propose a particular philosoph- philosophical approach to life. Um, but I really, f- it was very readable and fun. And I think that it's, you have to look at the novel of ideas as its own thing. Um, as its own kind of genre. And it made me feel that it's rather a shame that more um, scientists and thinkers don't put their views into fictional form. So it's a very enjoyable and palatable way of illustrating the ideas. Well, in the first place, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you again. (laughs) But uh, uh, there's much to reflect upon there, Iona. And uh, I do a little bit in the book itself, the, the preface and the, um, and, the, um, and the epilogue, pointing out, and, and this to me is so, so fascinating. One thing you said is that novels of ideas actually uh, often are not very good as just plain stories. And in that category, we can certainly put Atlas Shrugged, which oh, was... Oh, that's... Yes, Ayn Rand's work is terrible. <laughs> Which uh, I mean, some people speak for it, but most people just think, "Oh man, this is a terrible novel." And uh, another one is uh, Walden Two by B. F. Skinner, another novel of ideas, um, a, which was rejected by two publishers and accepted by the third, only under the condition that he write a textbook for them. Mm. And so, uh, <laughs> and so, I mean, that's just you know, if you judge that as a as a story, it's it's clunky as as all get out, and yet, and yet, these novels have great influence. So how do we, um, how do we um, account for that? And I think the way I explain that is that what stories do is convey worldviews, and what people embrace or reject is. First and foremost, the worldview. So if it's a worldview that's embraceable, you will forgive flaws in the story. After all, the Bible isn't such great literature. I mean, some of it is, but and uh, I always like to cite Mark Twain, who called the Book of Mormon chloroform in print. So (laughs) (laughs) these stories live within us for what sort of sense they make, literally sense-making, and ultimately resulting in what we do. So, so, so stories are basically, and this is true for symbolic systems in general, uh, are like our genotypes. And this is where we can segue right away to nonfiction, to science. It's called dual inheritance theory. And basically what it means is that there's two streams of inheritance in, in humans, the genetic stream that's that exists for all species, and this cultural stream based very largely on, on symbolic thought. So to think of our stories and everything else associated with our meaning systems as like our genes that influence our the way we are, our phenotypes and evolutionary jargon, along with our genes, is in some ways it's like you know restating the familiar in, in, in new words, but in other ways. The metaphorical transfer, what does it actually mean? What are the implications of thinking of our symbotypes, as we, um, as scientists are starting to call it, as like our 
genotypes. What does that actually mean? Does it add value to the way that uh, that figures in in the academic disciplines have been thinking about meaning systems for centuries and millennia? Well, it's funny because um, so I was thinking of this in the context of uh, evolutionary development. So I was recently interviewed Sean Carroll, and I read his book on EvoDevo, yeah. uh, which is called Endless Forms Most Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So if we think of a symbotype doesn't sound quite right to me because that sounds way too fixed. Um, I mean, I know genotype isn't completely fixed, but genes evolve very slowly and relatively rarely. And what happens mostly is that genetic switches uh, shift around the order and the place in which things are used and the way in which the same genetic material is used. And the same thing seems to happen with ideas. And you have this lovely metaphor for it. You talk about the formation of a kind of mosaic of ideas that people build up their worldview. You talk about his mother as a kind of mosaic artist. And um, I don't have the passage in, in front of me, but you talk about your protagonist's mother, who is based on Ayn Rand. Uh, sorry, his, grand, uh, his grandmother, grandmother, yes. grandmother right. who is based on Ayn Rand, as being like a kind of mosaic artist, that she's trying to build up a coherent picture, an internally coherent picture from little fragments. And some of them are truths. And if they're truths that fit into her sort of mosaic jigsaw, she slots them in. And if they're truths that need to be kind of just chipped at the edges a little bit to make them fit, she does that. And if there's a complete falsehood that nevertheless neatly fits into a place in the pattern, she sticks that in as well. I loved that kind of image. Uh, first of all, uh, Iona, thank you again, uh, in part because that's one of my favorite metaphors, too, from the book. And I can say that without appearing to boast, or maybe I do appear to boast, but I don't think I am, because uh, because as you know, I think, and as people who write, who love writing, and especially who write fiction, know, these things sort of bubble up, but you didn't cause them. You might have selected them, but there's something very generative and evolutionary and un planned about creative writing so that the idea of the mosaic art metaphor and i have the passage which i'll read here in just a just a oh, second oh yes please that just would be lovely kind of, you know it appeared in my mind and i selected it and then of course i refined it but uh, the idea of writing is an evolutionary process uh, which is directed so you certainly are aiming for a target you're not writing at random and yet at the same time there's some field of variation which has a partially a planned component, but partially an unplanned component. And so you're operating in this kind of uh, multiple capacities. As you, first of all, you're selecting these things and something within you is varying them, but that's very often unconscious in addition to conscious. So I think these are all things to think about. But back to the metaphor. So, uh, so uh, uh, John Galt too. I guess I should maybe give it the bare bones of the plot that um, um, John Galt One is the major protagonist of Ayn Rand's novel Atlas uh, uh, Shrugged. I transported Ayn Rand into my novel as Ayn Rand, 
who is the lover of John Galt I, and they have John Galt II, who becomes a sort of a Rush Limbaugh kind of a character, builds a media empire. And now here is John Galt II as a, as a boy, basically, um, observing his mother. So John Galt II had observed his mother long enough to know that she had no scruples about constructing her stylized universe. Truth had no value for her. She only cared about effect. Once this awareness dawned upon him, he watched with admiration as his mother plied her craft. She was like a mosaic artist, using truth as her tiles. If a particular fact fit, she would use it intact. Otherwise, she would clip it until its shape was just right. Remaining gaps were filled with wholesale fictions presented as fact. The completed work of art acted like a magic spell to convince people of the reasonableness of the objectivist creed. The biggest deception of all was to call the movement objectivism, as if it could be fully validated by rationality and science. So this brings in all kinds of issues, and I mean, <laughs> all kinds of timely issues like fake news and and um, and the whole idea of of, um, of saying and believing things and and constructing them for effect and freely departing from the truth whenever whenever um, whenever it's um, expedient and the opposite ethos of basically respecting the truth as a form of sacredness. And all of these are among the ideas that are embedded in the book. Mm. Yeah, I liked, I very much liked the fact that you say it at several points. Um, there's no, there's no kind of demonizing of the, um, the protagonist's family, his, his, uh, grandmother and father who are the objectivists, the Randian kind of libertarians. And you say at several points, and I think once quite explicitly, we shouldn't focus, we shouldn't get distracted by questions about people's intentions, but should focus on the effects of their ideas. Um, which I thought, which really gels with my own um beliefs because I am a non-believer in free will at a kind of profound level. I don't think we really choose what we think and believe. Um, and I think it's so what we should focus on is not trying to fight people, but trying to counteract ideas. Um, and sometimes it, it does feel like a kind of random variation that ideas are just floating around um, like viruses. I mean, that's why they're called kind of viral memes. Um, I, I felt that very strongly recently with the Bernie Sanders memes. I'm yes. a huge fan of, of Bernie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I love The him. mittens, the um, mittens. <laughs> I know. But it was like, whether you liked Bernie or not, it was kind of inescapable. Um, suddenly, Bur a, a million, a billion birdies <laughs> had, had been generated from this one image, and he was ubiquitous. And people had photoshopped him into every work of art and album cover. And I used an app which allowed you to photoshop him into your own photos. And yeah. I had a photo of myself sitting up in bed covered by a sheet so it's not a you can't see anything but i'm clearly naked beneath the sheet <laughs> and bernie in his mittens is right next to me 
Hey, hey, Iona, I thought that you only I thought that you were only attracted to attractive men. <laughs> um Oh no, I think I could make an well, I, you I think can I could make an exception. It's the mittens. It's the mittens. He has so much passion and I will, uh, I will keep that I will quite keep well. That, I will keep that in mind. <laughs> um, never never did I know that it was so easy to become attractive to women. <laughs> uh, well, you just have to be Bernie Sanders, which oh, is not yeah, that yeah. easy. It's yeah, taken it's him just, 70 not, years. <laughs> not, not just the mittens, okay. <laughs> but the mittens probably help, I'm sure. Um, but I think that it's, it feels as though on an individual level, we are just swimming in this sea of ideas and trying to do our best to sift through them. Um, but it's not, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me to kind of focus on individual blame. It makes much more sense to me to think about the climate of ideas. There's lots I want to say about that, Iona. One is that, um, back to my dad and back to fiction, uh, uh, my experience growing up with my father was uh, unique to people who's to sons of famous novelists, I guess, and maybe even more special than, than, um, than that. But, um, but, uh, he's his own, he, what I learned from him and what he represented was that, um, the really good novelists went beyond sort of cardboard heroes and villains. And uh, he admired Isaac Bashiva Singer was one of his favorite novelists, else he became one of mine. And what he said about Singer was that you could empathize with all the characters, even the villains. And I think that that sort of um, uh, distinguishes the, what we would call, you know, good serious fiction from more. I mean, I don't know what, what how to how to make that um, make that distinction. But um, but um, to to and and what it, what it means is that as you just said. These things are so situational, uh, so situational. Um, people who do bad things, uh, even heinous crimes, are often behaving morally, in fact, usually behaving morally in their own mind. And at a more mundane scale, since I work a lot with groups in my day job, <clears throat> I'm working with, with, um, with uh, many different kinds of groups who are all earnestly trying to, uh, well, that's the point. Very often, when we think about it theoretically, we talk about cooperators and cheaters, and we think of the cheaters as like explicitly cheating. They don't care about others, basically cheating in their intentions. But I know from experience that in most groups are not like that. There are no cheaters of that kind. Uh, everyone's trying to make it work, and yet they still trip over each other, and antagonism still takes place. And uh, and um, and so on. I found the passage again. I don't know if you don't mind me. I'll read this. Uh, oh yes, please. One of these passages that you, uh, uh, John, is writing Eve, his lover. They're now separated, and they're communicating only by letters and powder blue paper. And um, and he's just betrayed his father. It's part of the plot. It was setting a trap that his father fell into, and he's now basically um, feeling disgusted at his own. Um, action. And he said, still, it makes me sick that I had to betray a flesh and blood human, not to speak of my own father in order to set the story in motion. 
Here is what I have learned in my short life. Harm in the world is seldom caused by evil people. It is caused by normal people trying to tell right from wrong by peering through a tissue of lies. That's what you discovered for your Christian faith and what I discovered for objectivism. My father is not a bad man. He's a good man under the spell of a bad story. The only way to eliminate this kind of harm is to tell a powerful story that does not require peering through a tissue of lies. That story exists. Howard and I are convinced of that. Now the remaining challenge is to tell the story in front of the whole world. That is what I set in motion today. I should be proud, but it still makes me sick that I betrayed my own father. Yeah, the betrayal of the father, that there's some quite moving um, moments related to that later in the novel, which I don't want to get into, though, because I don't want to give people any spoilers. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I really liked the way that you handled the relationship with the his father and stepfather, a stepmother, towards the end of the novel. Oh, um, there's kind of nice little, um, very sort of psychologically pleasing um, surprise, but not a surprise of the kind of what the fuck style surprise, more a surprise of the, of course, you know, um, I should have thought of that. That was, that was kind of obvious, but in a, in a good way. It, oh, you know, boy, it I, know, I just can't help it. I mean, again, I don't want to gush with gratitude about Shh, you saying Don't nice say anything about, about what it is that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, um, no, it's exactly what I intended. And one of the things I did was I flirted with the, like, the superhero tropes, you know? I mean, so, um, and with, like, the popular sagas. So in some ways, this is just like Star Wars. It's the virtuous son battling the evil uh, father. I liberally put in references to Lord of the Rings, Superman, Wonder Woman, Thor, even Karate Kid. These are all sort of um, <clears throat> sprinkled throughout the the um, uh, novel. And yet at the same time, I definitely try to rise above it with respect to what we just talked about, sympathizing with all with all characters, and especially the plot developments not being some cataclysmic battle, which is what the uh, a duel of speeches, which is what the reader is led to expect, but something really different than that, in a way anticlimactic, but also in a way that's, yes, it's as it should be. That's how it must be. And so that's what I intended. And for it to land that way, um, in the mind of a reader means that I succeeded at what I intended. So I'm so happy for you to volunteer that. Thank you. Let's let's go back to the more specific ideas that you are trying to combat here. Um, there's a passage which um, I'm going to read, actually, <laughs> because I have it right here, um, about economics. So um, as, as you make clear in the book, um, just to clarify for everyone, and Ayn Rand is not was not an economist, and um, there's no um, in the Randian kind of libertarian thing. Um, there's a lot of gesturing towards economics, but it's not kind of it's not mathematical. It's not economic science in in any way. Um, there's a lot of gesturing towards the kind of Mandevillian thing that by that. Uh, by allowing each person to pursue their own self-interest in an unrestrained manner, you end up by generating 
uh, more welfare for everyone, which is an idea that you take issue with strongly in the book. But you also talk about, in a more fundamental manner, about the problem with economics as a discipline. And I'm going to read this passage. So your protagonist has just arrived at university, and he is taking a course in economics. Um, And he says, and this is, he's describing his economics tutor. Um, Of all my courses, economics mystified me the most. This was deeply troubling because it was also the subject that I assumed I most needed to to master to combat my father's evil empire. Our economics professor was the only one who dressed in business attire as if he were attending a board meeting. On the first day of class, he explained that economics is different from all other branches of the social sciences. He meant superior because it alone is based on a mathematical theory. In this theory, individual people are like atoms, and the economy is a product of their interactions. Just as physicists require very precise assumptions about the properties of atoms to build their equations, economists need very precise assumptions about people. He then proceeded to list the assumptions made by economists about people under the heading homo economicus, as if this was a description of a biological species. Homo economicus was entirely self-regarding, my professor explained. This was not exactly the same thing as being selfish in the conventional sense of the word, but it did mean having a sense of preferences that remains constant and is not influenced by the preferences of others. A person's self-regarding preferences determine what they strive for. In economic jargon, people attempt to maximize a utility. To a first approximation, this could be assumed to be monetary gain. It took a long time for my professor to get there, but the bottom line seemed to be that according to this mathematical theory that makes economics superior to all other branches of the social sciences, People only care about making as much money for themselves as possible. Um, I think that's, that passage also shows the kind of uh, um, slightly wry, um, humorous tone that a lot of the book has, which I, which I very much enjoyed. Um, so tell us more about how um, your understanding of evolutionary biology is, helps you to kind of counter that, that mechanistic, uh, view of economics. Well, in the first place, Iona, that that passage also reveals the didactic nature of the um, of the novel, and um, because that's just straight. I mean, I could have given that in a lecture. I, I, mean, I have in a nonfiction lecture or in a nonfiction book. The great challenge there was to <clears throat> communicate that kind of information in a way which doesn't like disrupt the story or just make the story totally clunky. So, um, mm-hmm. um, but uh, in fact, the continuation of that passage is verbatim from uh, a famous book called Nudge by Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics, and Cass Sunstein. Uh, they're pioneers in the field of behavioral economics. Um, and I, I mean, I could be accused of plagiarism, not that, uh, I mean, it was, it was, I didn't. I don't cite anything. It's a novel, for heaven's sakes. But basically, the idea that Homo economicus is as smart as Bill uh, as uh, as Big Blue and 
and as the discipline of Mahatma Gandhi and so on is uh, is uh, taken verbatim from uh, from uh, Thaler and, and Sunstein's description of Homo economica. So all of this is like you know true for the field of of economics. And my challenge was to um, convey it in the book without boring the boring the um, uh, a reader. And another point which is made in that section soon soon after that that passage and that that mystifies our hero John Galt three is that the economists never talk about his grandmother and father they don't talk about objectivism i mean objectivism is a fiction so is homo economicus but the two fictions are different from each other so what's going what's going on here this kind of um um separation you know parallel universes and yet because they're driving in the right direction in terms of their end goal, justifying greed as good, basically, well, then all other differences are forgiven. And that's true in real life. In real life, there is no strong connection between Ayn Rand. If she never existed, as I point out in the epilogue, individualism would be just as strong. We could combine that with other creeds, like the gospel of wealth, which is for uh, robber barons such as John D. Rockefeller, how did they justify their their um, their greed? Is that prosperity is a, is God's sign of your moral worth? That's not connected to economics or objectivism, which was atheist. And so mm-hmm. this is another point I think which can address your question of how do we approach this as an evolutionary perspective. We would think of this as a kind of a convergent symbolic evolution. What the system is trending towards is a justification of lower level self-interest. I wanted I want to get my way and I need to justify it, consciously or subconsciously. When that selection pressure exists again and again and again, there will be a response to that. That's what convergent evolution is. And the response to it, other than having the effect of justifying greed as good, need not be similar in any other respect. And so and so it's for that reason that you could get multiple justifications for something that have nothing in common other than their effect. In the biological world, if you act, you know, how do, what are all the species that protect themselves from predators by evolving hard shells? And there's many of them. They all share the common property of having hard shells, armadillos, turtles, snails need not be any other similarity because they all starting from different points and so on and so forth. And so I think that provides a way to, uh, provides a hint basically as to how we can approach this from a evolutionary perspective, a cultural evolutionary uh, perspective. So they're usually all using the same genes to create the, um, uh, to create the shell or to create the eye or whatever it is. They're responding to different pressures. So in a sense, it's it's the same elements are being recycled and used in different ways, um, and I think that that's what we what you perhaps don't. Um, oh, when I say you, I mean one. What one perhaps doesn't realize, looking at these three supposedly separate systems, but it's something that we should always suspect when when a thing seems to be overdetermined. You know, we used to believe that eyes were made in different organisms all from scratch. 
And now we know that they're all kind of drawing on the same material to create the eye, but the end result looks very different. And I wonder if something similar is happening here with the Homo economicus and the Randian stuff and this kind of Calvinist idea of um, that your 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 earthly prosperity signals your kind of um, your acceptability in the eyes of God. Okay, I don't know. Let's let's dwell on this a little bit. We don't have a hard stop, right? We can go on long as as long as it's fun. No, right? we can. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so uh, this is a bit complicated. So I want to half agree with you and then push back for the other half. Well, what you say about spare parts and you know everything evolves from some previous state. Evolution is like a tinkerer, and and if these you know if the spare parts, everyone has access to the same spare parts, and they're all trying to build the same mousetrap. Then they'll draw upon the same same parts to a degree, but uh, but actually only to a degree. And if you did the thought experience of actually hand, getting assembling boxes of, st- of boxes that all have exactly the same spare parts, and giving them to different tinkerers and instructing them to build a mousetrap from it, you would get diff- they would differ in what they would build, even though they had the mm. same box, mm. right? We can all appreciate mm. that. So yeah. Um, so, um, and to give a biological example, um, lactose tolerance in adults, the ability of adults to digest milk, evolved in separate geographical regions. In any culture that began domesticating livestock and had access to milk as an adult resource, that created a selection pressure for the evolution of lactose tolerance. So it truly was the same genes, the same selection pressure, just like that tinkerer example. But mutations are random. And so it turns out that the the very specific mutations that evolve enabling adults to digest milk are different in Europe and in Africa and the separate places where the selection pressure um, arose. And so so against that background, when we look at culture as a big box of spare parts, and then we see that there's some sort of pressure to fashion meaning systems uh, for their effect, whatever it might be, it might be altruistic, it might be selfish, doesn't matter. Point is, is that is that um, these uh, meaning systems are being are being selected. You'll get that combination of similarities and differences. There'll be a functional similarity because that's, after all, what's being selected. There will also be a some similarity in the parts that are selected, but that similarity will be only partial. There you go. That's what I wanted to say. Mm, yeah. I like the way that you... Um, so I'm fami- I mean, I think most people are familiar with memetics and Dawkins' idea of the of the meme as a kind of parallel to the gene. Um, but uh, I like the way that you consistent with your work, because in your work, you always, you are always talking about, um, the group level, the combination of the combination of things to form an organism. And you, you mean, or you use the word organism in a very broad sense, i.e. a system of different parts cooperating, um, for in a kind of symbiosis. Um, and I like the way that you 
rather than talking at the level of individual memes, you talk about knowledge systems as if they were organisms. So you, you are talking again at the group level rather than the, the particulate level. Am I making sense? <laughs> perfect, perfect sense. Let me elaborate on it. Um, I'll do it twice, once uh, in the context of the real world and again in the context of the, um, of the uh, novel. Um, the, um, a point to make is that um, the real target of my critique uh, in Atlas Hugged is individualism, not Ayn Rand, but individualism. The idea that the mm-hmm. individual person is some fundamental unit um, and all things social have to be reduced to the thoughts and actions of um, individuals. That concept has long roots, historical roots, but it did not become culturally dominant until the second half of the 20th century. and. It became so dominant that not only did it penetrate economics with Homo economicus, not only did it penetrate the social sciences, uh, including social uh, uh, psychology, where it's called methodological individualism, but it penetrated my own field of evolutionary biology. So at the very same time that economists were exulting over the idea that everything is a form of individual utility maximization, Folks like Richard Dawkins were exulting over the fact that everything that evolves is a form of individual self-interest, individuals maximizing their selfish genes. And what gave it the appearance of generality was that everyone was converging on a provincial view. I think, let's, let me repeat, what everyone seemed to think was so general was actually only a convergence upon a provincial view of individualism. And this has helped me to ex- to understand the zeal with which group selection was rejected during that period. The zeal with which the idea that something might evolve for the good of the group, the group was just not just rejected, but rejected as if this was like one of the greatest triumphs of the 20th, uh, one of the greatest intellectual achievements of the 20th century. And so what we find is, and that's what I, I mean, my career as a scientist was to challenge that. So I was one of a few people, not the only one, but one of a few people that said, no, wait a minute, actually not. Way back in the 19, uh, 1970s and, um, and ever since. But so one thing that we can say is that not just has group selection, multi-level selection, this more systemic view of evolution been revived. But the entire tradition of individualism is waning, and more systemic views are coming back into vogue across the board. It needs to happen much faster. I mean, actually, much, much faster. I've been at this for nearly half a century. And so we need to catalyze that. And catalysis, as you know, is a, a major theme in the uh, in the book, the idea that cultural evolution can take place a hundred a thousand times faster if you know how to how to um how to do it. So so um um what you said about uh my systemic view compared to uh, the more Dawkinsian view is true, and thank you for it. But I, I just wanted to 
I just wanted to um, um, uh, basically set the stage for it in a larger sense in terms of intellectual intellectual history. And all of that is is woven into the the uh, theme of Atlas Hugged. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I love your definition of, of catalysis or your explanation of catalysis in the novel, uh, which was an, uh, an image that I had never really, um, I mean, I, I understand what a catalyst is. It's something that speeds up a reaction without being changed itself. But the way that you explained it is it's a thing that holds two elements together long enough for them to affect each other. So you use it in this social sense of, uh, for example, the protagonist brings together a meeting of scholars and intellectuals from different fields. And it's kind of, he's, by doing that, he's physically kind of holding them together in space, um, in his, in his house up there in, um, I've actually forgotten which state it's in it's, Wyoming. Uh, his his mountain Wyoming. hermitage, his cell in Wyoming. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, he's he's you know he's physically holding them together in the same place for long enough for them to begin to have an effect on each other. Um, so I thought that was a beautiful way of describing catalysis. It's also uh, Iona accurate. Uh, I'm no chemist, but yeah. uh, I mean, what literally happens is a catalytic molecule does latch on to other molecules, holds them in a way that binds them to each other, and it itself is released in the process to repeat the action, which is why it's not it's not used up. And the metaphorical transfer of saying, "Okay, well, what does that look like for a cultural process?" It's exactly as you described. You you do something which brings people together in some way that they continue interacting with each other, that binds them to each other, and then you're released to repeat the the process. And so what that means is, and this is a case where life imitates art. I kind of developed some of those ideas in the context of writing the novel, but in no time I was speaking about cultural catalysis just in my day job. And, um, And to think that it's literally true that knowing exactly who you want to bring together and to what effect in this case, to place the concept of the superorganism on a scientific, the society as an organism on a scientific foundation, that's a metaphor which has existed for millennia, all the way back to the Greeks, Hobbes, Leviathan, uh, Christian allusions to the body of the church united under the head of Christ. The idea that society uh, is an organism was actually the dominant tradition before individualism. It's what individualism replaced. So there's nothing new about thinking of society as like a organism, but only as a metaphor. What is new? New in the history of ideas, as Howard Head uh, uh, puts it, is to actually place that metaphor on a scientific foundation. That's what's happened in evolutionary biology, starting all the way back in the 70s, at the very same time that group selection was so decisively, seemed to be so decisively rejected, the cell biologist Lynn Margulis came up with a radical theory, which itself had roots, but uh, the radical theory that nucleated cells, which are much more complicated than bacterial cells, evolved not by slow, small mutational steps from bacteria, 
but as cooperative symbiotic communities of bacteria, literally the, the nucleated cell, and of course, therefore, multicellular organisms are societies of bacteria. Uh, so the quintessential individual, the cell or the multicellular organism, is in fact a highly regulated and cooperative society. Um, not only multicellular organisms, societies of cells, but cell societies of of bacteria. And then that concept got generalized in the 90s by two theoretical biologists named John Maynard Smith, who was a previous critic of group selection, and a Hungarian biologist named Urs Svathmeri, who is still with us, um, to what they called major evolutionary transition. So they basically rolled that back to the origin of life as cooperating groups of molecular reactions, and they rolled it forward to social insect colonies and begun, just kind of took a step towards uh, speculating human evolution. Could we think about human evolution as a major evolutionary transition, similar to those other ones, all the way back to the origin of life? Wouldn't that be something? And so that's what's, uh, that's, that's the real world. That's not my novel, uh, but it is my novel because, because that's also the kind of the intellectual events that, that uh, take place in the novel. Mm. I mean, it's, it's politically, I think it's interesting that, of course, there's always a freeloader problem, potentially, when you, for example, provide a wel welfare state services to people. And that is the kind of side of things which um, right-wing thinkers always dwell upon. Well, if you, you know, if the state is providing, for example, um, unemployment benefits, then that will disincentivize people from seeking work and they will be um, taking advantage of taxpayers by simply sitting at home watching TV and claiming their unemployment benefits. But what's more surprising to me is that um, we have so few freeloaders that most people don't do that. Um, and the system works because it doesn't get overloaded by cheaters and people who take advantage. Um, so I think that what I see in your work is a kind of theory of why that happens, um, why, why society isn't overrun by cheaters in the same way as why normal people are, uh, you know, everyone walking around isn't riddled with cancer. Yeah, so uh, again, a lot to say there, Iona. Um, and uh, so let's head in. The uh, I want to make two points. One is is that uh, these problems are real. I mean, you, it's true that most people are cooperative, uh, but it only takes a few that aren't to corrupt the whole system. We've seen that with our current political landscape. So um, a system, a, a society has to be very well protected against disruptive behaviors, regardless of whether they're conscious or unconscious, intentional or unintended. That doesn't matter. Um, these disruptive behaviors, just like cancer, will occur. And unless you're not strongly protected for, against them, then um, your society will not, will not um, um, last. Uh, the way to think about it, and this is the way to think about human moral systems, 
uh, in general is like an immune system, basically. An immune system elaborately designed to protect against cancerous behaviors. And the whole concept of that we should talk about, we can and should talk about disruptive um, behaviors as like cancer, is in the first place something to be done carefully and responsibly, because many times, you know, in an effort to dehumanize various people or groups of people, we, we dehumanize them by calling them a disease or a cancer or an animal or a cockroach or a, or a rat. And so uh, we need to avoid uh, that kind of hurling of, uh, of, um, of insults. But at the same time, if you, if you actually uh, look at the people who study cancer, cancer biologists, such as Athena Actopus, is one of uh, uh, my most respected uh, colleagues. Uh, her book on the subject is called The Cheating Cell. So cancer biologists call use the basically the lexicon, the vocabulary of human social interactions to call cancer cells cheating compared to the normal solid citizen cells of the body. And they can't resist it because it's basically the dynamics of cooperation and, and uh, disruptive uh, self-serving behavior. So if cancer biologists use the word cheat, I mean, uh, us people studying social groups could use the word cancer, can't we? If we're going to remain consistent. And so cancer, for that reason, is a theme woven throughout the book in numerous ways that I won't, uh, won't recount. But you could say that cancer is a major character of the, uh, of the book. So there's one point. But then another point is, because we are primed that way, and here we get a little bit into the territory of evolutionary psychology, which I know you are fairly familiar with. Um, that means that I mean, this feeling of freeloading and uh, a reaction to something like a welfare program as just a way for freeloaders to, to uh, just open to, to freeloading is easily triggered even when it's not true. And so we really have to worry about, um, about um, uh, we have all these modules. I think um, evolutionary psychology is half right. And what most people think about evolutionary psychology is half right. Uh, there's also an immune system metaphor to be had there, that if you look at the immune system, it consists of two components. One is called innate, elaborately innate, but does not change during your lifetime. It's just what the genes give you. And then there's the adaptive component. That's the evolution of antibodies, the rapid evolution of antibodies within the lifetime of the uh, of the organism. So when we think of the human behavioral repertoire like that, we can appreciate the innate component. That's what is emphasized by evolutionary psychologists such as David Buss, my good friend, and Lita Cosmides, and John uh, Tooby. Uh, massive modularity, they they call it all these things that are just triggered by environmental stimuli, not least the us-them reaction. And um, and the Skinnerian side of things, the open-ended ability to um, evolve our behaviors based on what Skinner calls selection by consequences. And then this goes beyond Skinner, not just by operant conditioning, but also by the evolution of our symbolic Systems, which Skinner didn't really succeed very well at understanding that, but his his uh, his follower, I mean his his descendants, his intellectual descendants have, including my very great um, and valued colleague Stephen C. Hayes, who founded a method of uh, 
therapy and training called acceptance and commitment training or or therapy. So this open-ended side to human nature. And oh, this- yes, which which I've been using at your, uh, um, I've been reading up about at your recommendation. Oh, wonderful. Um, and uh, I'm a little bit impervious to, <laughs> uh, to self-help systems, yeah. I have to confess. Um, <laughs> but I do find some of the ideas very, uh, very useful. Um, wonderful. That's great. So it's, thank very, you for that. it's very science validated. Every couple of weeks, Steve, if you follow Steve on Twitter, you'll see. I mean, just recently, uh, what was it? It was uh, it was pain management in children. Some big review gave high marks to act uh, um, therapy for pain management in children. And a couple of weeks back, he said, and he keeps careful tabs on the literature. He says. Uh, not only are there hundreds of randomized control trials <laughs> validating ACT for a whole constellation of, of problems, but there's a uh, now the number of meta-analyses, that's analyses of the, of the, of the analyses, um, is approaching 100. So there is something going on here. This is not just psychobabble or, or, or uh, psychological woo-woo. This is a, a way to manage your personal evolution. You are an evolutionary process, and evolution is always taking place in you, but often it's leading in directions that you might not want to go, as paradoxical as that might sound. So to think of the individual person as an evolving unit, even as a group, and I was just talking with, uh, um, who was it? Uh, It was yesterday, but uh, um, just playing with the idea of the uh, oh, it was, it was my my heavens! It was my um, my co-founder of ProSocial, Paul Atkins, who lives in Australia, and we're all playing with this idea that the that the the individual is a group. The individual is a group of voices, of tendencies um, that need to cooperate with each other. So not only are groups individuals, but individuals are groups. I mean, it is we have so much fun. Uh, to uh, playing with these uh, with these potent potent ideas, and so to play with them in fiction and in the real world side by side, uh, co-evolving with each other was uh, I'm a very very lucky person intellectually. The idea that I'm this is a slight digression, but the idea from ACT that I particularly enjoyed um, was the idea that. An individual action, which might be kind of un—I mean, uh, this is—I guess it's a—it's another way of stating something we already know, but it's a—a a way of rephrasing that resonated with me, um, and that is often how that is often, you know, that is something very useful in itself. Just being able to find the kind of phrasing that makes sense to people, um, and it was about how actions uh, that you things that you are don't enjoy doing um and um find unpleasant um and are not looking forward to doing that that those things if you can find a beauty and value in them if they are furthering your self development if they are kind of strengthening you in being the kind of person you want to be um 
it's a little bit of the same kind of philosophy that I find expressed in this um in this hymn. I'm not a Christian, not even culturally, but I do kind of enjoy hymns. And uh the this particular verse goes a, um, a servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. And you take out the religious kind of thing, and instead of the, you're doing the sweeping f- to fulfill some kind of divine mandate, it's about um, an action that furthers you in your journey towards being a, a, a better person, towards self-actualization. I find that a really... Um, uh, powerful statement. And I um, have been thinking about it a lot when I do the many things that I do that I don't enjoy. Yep, and yep. rather than kind of rushing through them, I feel a bit more, just it made me feel a bit more painstaking and meticulous. Yeah, I'm like, I'm what, you know, I'm washing up. Um, in our household, we don't really each do our own washing up, but everybody kind of if they see washing up is there, they they do it. Yeah. Um, and um, I think people are very. Cons- I, I live with very considerate. Um, I live with close friends. We're, Lucky we you, are I, an organism. I have to say that in I my know. lab, I lab. I study cooperation. <laughs> and and the kitchen and the kitchen the kitchen corner of my lab was always a frightful mess. We couldn't even solve the problem of cooperation at the at the scale of my kitchen corner. It was just uh, deeply humiliating. So I'm I'm glad that you live with such a cooperative bunch. Well, our our slightly uh, our slightly looser um, approach does mean that things are not always you know spotless. Uh-huh. But um, but it isn't. It's kind. It's it's quite. There's quite an unselfish approach here. So you don't have time to do the washing up. You just leave it, and somebody else who has time is going to do it later. Yeah. Um. And because nobody here is a freeloader, it works. And as I was washing up, I was thinking about the kind of act thing. That this is an action that's kind of you know furthering my, um my realization of who I want to be as a person, which is, among other things, you know, a good friend and a good housemate. And I just felt that I somehow took more pleasure in the action itself. Yeah. Um, So that worked for me. Let me say a little bit more about it for our listeners, um, Iona. And um, the fact that I can do it so quickly tells you that something important is, is going on. One point to make is that it's not new. Very little is. Uh, but something that is new is to see it in a new way. And that's actually a theme of um, uh, Atlas Hugged, is that when these breakthroughs occurred to our hero, John Galt III, these, you know, these insights come crashing down upon him like giant jigsaw puzzle pieces coming together. And uh, almost immediately, they're obvious in retrospect. And so the most profound advances are actually elementary, at an elementary level. And this was also true for Darwin. And every great thinker is not a genius. The idea of attributing great thoughts to great people is banal. Um, uh, Great thoughts is is the entering of some new mental territory. And And the people that end up being called great are mental wayfarers. So all of that can be said about ACT. There's nothing new here. But on the other hand, there is something new in how we can 
configure it. And and um, and so ACT, what does it stand for? Acceptance and commitment training or therapy. And, and acceptance means just what you said. There's bad stuff going on, has going on in our lives, sometimes very bad stuff, stuff that I couldn't even fathom given my relatively uh, benign upbringing. Um, all kinds of things in our heads and in our lives we wish were not there. Um, you want to repress them, or deny their existence? No, we need to accept them. So the acceptance, there's the acceptance part of ACT. Uh, so now that you've accepted them and even accepted that they might never go away, that they're just part of who you are, after you do that, then what you need to do is to commit to working around them towards your valued goals. And one ACT metaphor puts this nicely. It's a, a metaphor that imagine that you're a bus driver, you're driving a bus, you need to get to a destination, people are getting on and off the bus. Most of them are nice, but some of them are not. Some of them are downright scary. So what do you do? You stop the bus and spend all your time trying to get the nasty people off the bus, which they might never do? Or do you accept the fact that your bus includes some nasty people and then you proceed to your destination? So there is a case where a metaphor, just by by reframing things, can be enormously helpful. And and you know that's why religions are effective with metaphors like that. That hymn that you just recited, that you love so much, and you recite, you keep it in your mind. And every time you do, Iona, it influences your behavior. And so why shouldn't we think of that as a meme or the equivalent, uh, um, something which uh, is in your head? And it affects how you act, your, your, your phenotype. And so knowing that, you can... Now, when we look closer at the bad stuff, what we find is most of it's adaptive. Often we're behaving offensively, so we're pulling into our shell, or we're lashing out, or we're retreating, or we're trying to control. We're all trying to, in some ways, protect ourselves and get our way in, in, in ways that are perfectly easy to understand from an evolutionary perspective, often through the triggering of these modules, these unconscious modules that just, you know, something happens and then a button is pushed and, and, and a module is expressed and there we go. Um, we have protected ourselves in a very, very, very limited sense, but none of this contributes to our normative aspirational Goals, quite the contrary, took us away from from those. And so to accept the existence of these things, you understand that they have a logic. They're not just pathological. They have a they have a logic. And then to commit to working around them to a to aspirational goals that you clarify, you spend some time clarifying those. That's what works. That's what that's what you can do in an extraordinarily short period of time, and which all of those randomized control trials um, show works. The most recent study that I've read was actually a 15-minute intervention on couples that had the effect of improving their relationship. 15 minutes. So um, we've covered a lot of ground here, um, but one thing that I'd like to uh, that I want to ask you is um, we talked a little bit about how um, writing a fiction enabled you to 
uh, it gave you a kind of elegant way of saying certain things. Um, But are there things that you were able to say in fictional form that you think would have been difficult for you to convey in nonfiction? If you'd written, say, a nonfiction book, which was a riposte to Ayn Rand, to Ayn Rand's philosophy. Well, in many ways, I did. My last nonfiction book, This View of Life, which we discussed in our first mm, podcast mm, together, yes. is is uh, so similar in its aims to um, Atlas Hug that I made the cover of Atlas Hug similar to This View of Life. That's how parallel they they are. And so, uh, and yet, um, Atlas Hugged, and this again gets to the distinction between fiction and, and nonfiction. There's, and, and this is why um, Atlas Shrugged added something to just the study of, of economics. And, and Ayn Rand herself wrote philosophical pieces, essays, and, and the like in addition to fiction. But it was by far and away fiction that was her most effective vehicle. And I think that that's the question that we need to ask. What is it about fiction that adds life to an argument in a way that just a nonfiction account uh, doesn't? Why is it that a novel can be so gripping? There's very, very few, there's many more novels that you would call gripping than nonfiction. The very, very best nonfiction is you could call gripping. You can't, you know, you if it's a page turner, you can't put it down. But actually, no, <laughs> not like a novel where you just you would just impel to know what happens next, and and then you ended up feeling that there's something right about it, uh, um, that it had to be that way. And I think that I mean, if a novel doesn't deliver that, then you're disappointed in the novel. There has to be some sort of satisfaction as to how it all. Uh, how it all turns out. And what I think that's signaling is that uh, the fiction is the superior vehicle for a moral system. And Rand said it herself, and and um, what I quote in the front space, so she said, art is the essential medium for the communication of a moral ideal. And so if you're trying to communicate a moral ideal, which includes a sharp sense of right and wrong, for that to take place through events and for that moral system to be challenged in a way that is overcome so that it comes out right the way it should be, the very word should is telling you that we're dealing in some kind of moral territory. So I think that mm, with any novel, interesting. including Atlas Hugged, I think if the reader uh, is is captured by it, and to use the word capture <laughs> is interesting in itself, then they say that's how I want the world to be. I want I I want the world to be more like the story, and then to inspire to work towards that. And we hear that uh, the example that springs to mind is uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. In the pre-Civil War era, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the author, but it was a book that Harriet, by, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Thank you. Uh, that by humanizing slaves, by enabling the reader to 
basically put themselves in the skin, understand what it's like to be a slave, was as important as the Civil War for uh, for emancip- an- emancipation. So there's something about stories that um, uh, a novel can do uh, can do all of that. So that's my expansive answer to your question. And then to to uh, just say a bit about how that felt on the on the on the writer's side, on the, on the side of the person of creating the story. I was more engrossed by it than any of my nonfiction books. This took me totally by surprise. I always thought that I loved writing nonfiction, and I do, but it was like nothing compared to creating a story with all of those degrees of freedom, to have all the just complete freedom at constructing a stylized universe, a piece of mosaic art, um, was. Um, uh, just way beyond what I experienced with non nonfiction. Mm, thank you so much, um, David. Is there anything that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you an opportunity to say? Well, I did actually want to return to the concept of novels of ideas, and what oh we, yes, and what we said earlier was that it's kind of a precarious genre. Um, it sets a low bar as far as um, storytelling is um, is concerned. Uh, glad to know that I might have hopped over that bar with uh, with Atlas um, hugged. But uh, what I wanted to say about it is that if you go back uh, to a slightly earlier time, even to um, to the time when there were like you know. Uh, Novelists recognized as great intellectual, towering intellectual figures like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky or Hemingway or or um, Thomas Hardy. Choose your choose your great author. Um, well, why do we call them great? Is because they were dealing with very very serious intellectual themes. Uh, those were novels of ideas, but but. In a way that, and the point that I'm making is something has happened, which is the like the uh, unhealthy forms of specialization, where so much that took place just outside the university academic environment has now been captured by the academic environment, as if the only people that are qualified to talk about great ideas are the professors. And um, and and if we kind of appreciate that, and then realize that we we want to cultivate something that existed before, where uh, where people that are not trained academics are actually qualified to think about and write about uh, important thoughts and. Uh, in any form, fiction or fiction or nonfiction, then this idea of a you know a novel of ideas can expand beyond this kind of genre of of, um, of uh, didactic novels like uh, like Atlas Shrugged or or Walden uh, too, and can cover uh, novels that uh, we just recognize as great fiction. Those are novels of ideas, aren't they? 
and I'm not trying to place myself among them, but uh, why wouldn't we call uh, any of the novels that we recognize as great a novel of ideas and great because of those ideas, because of those general themes um, uh, uh, conveyed? What do you think about that? Hmm. I think that's true in a very general level, but what differentiates what I would think of as the novel of ideas from the kind of novel tout court, which is um, the the specificity of the ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, a middle march could be seen as a novel of ideas in a sense. It's about uh, it's about uh, empathy. Um, middle march, the novel is about empathy, and I think it's also uh, the greatest kind of intellectual em- uh, exercise in empathy. That possibly anyone's ever uh, ever done, ever produced, but that's a that's a sort of one word answer. And then if I begin to describe in more detail what Middlemarch is about, then I'm going to start talking about character and plot, um, and the specifics of characters' lives. Whereas in the case of your novel, uh, for example. Um, I can talk in quite some detail and length about what it's about without actually talking about the plot or the characters at all. So I could talk only about what the central idea is. Um, and we have been doing that already uh, quite a lot. So I think that that is um, one of the things that that differentiates the novel of ideas from from the kind of the novel novel that in the novel it's um there there certainly will be ideas that are explored um and often problematized i think uh problematized more than in the novel of ideas so many novels are about where the where the tensions are and they go straight to those tensions and kind of worry at them um, so very frequently, people's ideals in novels are shattered, and they're kind of grand schemes, and their larger and more overarching ideas um, are just uh, dismantled. Um, just don't survive contact with the ki- the kind of richness and subtlety of human life. This is not to say that the ideas in the novel of ideas are simplistic, um, but just the kind of way in which ideas are treated, bodies of ideas are treated, is is rather different in both of those. And if I think of Middlemarch, someone like Kasabon with his theory of all mythologies, uh, it's a kind of a golden bow style work that he's doing, um, that um, That is shown to be a completely hollow enterprise. There's no overarching sort of set of ideas that um, that is championed within within Middlemarch. Um, So I think it's a bit the emphasis is a bit different, and the kind of aim is a bit different um, within those those sorts of novels. I mean, there are some very, um, there's some really highly kind of literary novels of ideas, um, particularly I'm thinking of Goethe, for example. Um, But it's 
it's a slightly different enterprise, I would say. And I don't think George Eliot, for example, began with a set of ideas of philosophy. She began with a in-depth exploration of human life, and that kind of gives rise to a philosophy as you go along. So I think it's it's different. And this is not to denigrate the novel of ideas, even though it's it's very difficult to write a good novel of ideas. And I think you have succeeded in doing that, but it's it's a more difficult task because they can become very dry and sort of stilted um, because some you can find that the writer is very obviously just manipulating the plot to make it fit their ideas or writing very kind of, um, or writing these intrusive sort of authorial asides to make sure that you've, they hammer home the idea or, or also depicting the character in a very one-sided way. And Ayn Rand herself does all of those things in her <laughs> novels, which is yeah. why they're so dreadful. Um, <laughs> Um, but I think that it's, um, there are different approaches and, and it's about the level of abstraction and the level of detail that you can give in those kinds of abstract, uh, abstractions. That was really helpful. Uh, I don't know. That was uh, really helpful indeed. Yeah. I think that that's, um, that's, um, I would agree with, uh, uh, with all of that, I was. Um, I did have one final thing to say. Maybe it's final. Probably it is. Probably should be. <laughs> um, uh, that um, what I'm. What we're trying to do, and what I'm trying to do, and what is happening historically, of course, is that at last, um, evolutionary thinking is kind of penetrating uh, everyday life to the point that it just becomes part of the material that. Uh, that uh, any uh, uh, person writing fiction would would just would be part of that uh, that um, uh, box of spare parts that they that they work with. They would have become mm -hmm. familiar with it. And we saw this with Freudian psychology. I think Freudian psychology was um, kind of entered, became the raw material of novelists um, big time, right? And uh, a lot of those novels, I think, might not fare very well. Uh, um, you know, survive the passage of time, in part because Freud's theory was so flawed. So any novel based on a flawed theory, I think, is going to itself be flawed by having a unrealistic uh, theory of human nature. But when, what happens when there's a more realistic uh, uh, theory, one that's more authentic, that just enters everyday life enough so that it begins to become incorporated by artists of any of any uh a stripe and uh i have a colleague maybe you know him his name is george levine he's a literary scholar and he wrote a book yes. on on uh, darwin and the novelists and basically the reception of um the victorian novelist to darwin and you know i mean since Darwin was such big news back then, of course the novelists of the day were discussing him. Everyone else was. And so you know, Darwin was a theme uh, of their novels. And George recommended one of Thomas Hardy's novels. I'm searching for the, the Woodlanders is the 
novel. And it's like an ethnography of, this is pre-industrial revolution. So it was an ethnography of, of, um, of the British culture of, of living off wood products. You know, people lived in the woodlands and, and they cut the trees and they did, you know, use the bark for tanning. And there was an entire pre-industrial economy. Uh, surrounding this, and that was the setting of the novel. But but it was you know there were Darwinian themes represented in it. There was a, a line in which how all the the trees were were um, jostling against each other. I mean, what what Darwin introduced was the idea of competition. And so you take a walk in the woods and you think that it's all tranquil out here or something. This is an actual a big theme in my novel. You think it's so peaceful out there, but no, it's a ghetto out there. These these these. These trees are at each other's throats. They're they're rubbing <laughs> their branches against each other as, as a form of battle. Um, that's what um, Darwin meant to signify to um, to Hardy. And so I think that in my case, because I'm steeped in evolution, uh, and um, and so I'm in a better position to just weave. Evolution into my it's it's woven, for example, into the character of Eve and and John Galt three in ways that the reader won't detect because I don't wear it on my sleeve. But there's actually a literature on highly sensitive people, people that are by nature are very reflective and introverted. Other people that are movers and adventuresses and and um, um, uh, uh, things like that that um, that are. Um, just because that's my box of spare parts, that's what I used, and I'm I'm, I'm really looking forward to evolution, evolutionary theory becoming so common, basically, so much a part of everyday life that it just becomes part of every every artist's box of spare parts, whatever they create. Mm. Well, I think that you are helping to make that happen, um, and uh, in a very enjoyable way. Thank you so much, David, uh, for being my guest today. And um, I, I recommend everyone go read the book. Well, thank you so much, Iona. Such a pleasure to talk with you. It's a pleasure to talk with you, as always. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.